So our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, the first seven verses. invite you to follow along in your Bible or texts are also printed on the screen. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of the Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The seal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is God's word. Thanks as always, Eric. Appreciate your prayers and uh, the reading of God's word. Um, If you're with us uh, for the first time this morning, um, we're in the middle of a series, an Advent series called Christmas from beginning to end. And we looked at the beginning last week in Genesis chapters, really one, two, and in three. And for those of you who are familiar with the storyline of the Bible and God created everything and he created it good, good, good. It was great. And what we looked at last week was sin's entrance into the world and how the brokenness affected absolutely everything. And our response as humankind was to try to repair it on our own, but that is completely unsuccessful. So God himself provides a promise back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that one day he will send a seed of the woman, and that seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, even though the serpent strikes the heel of the woman. And we talked about what that looks like in the person of Christ. And so when we say Christmas in the beginning, we see the promise that God will be with us, that he was with us, 
but then he's coming to fix the problem of sin as well. That's what's anticipated in Advent. So if you were living back in Genesis chapter 4 and you were aware of what was happening as Moses had recorded that, you'd be looking forward, as the people of Israel were, to a time when the Messiah, the anointed king, the one who was promised back in Genesis chapter 3, would arrive. Now today we're in the book of Isaiah. And the Messiah has not yet come. Isaiah is in the area and uh, the time, the era of the prophets. And oftentimes when we think about a prophet, if you were to say I'm, I'm a prophet, you think about somebody who is foretelling, predicting the future. And that is one element of what prophecy is about. Oftentimes in the prophetic books, there's a declaration of something that is yet to come. But also the prophets, and really more of the text in the prophets, is about forth-telling. They tell the truth now, and they diagnose the problems around them and say, this is how things really are. They're pretty good at truth-telling. They're the kind of people who see things in very stark categories, and they take away all the chaff and say, this is your problem. Um, they were probably, you know, sensing types, if you're a Myers-Briggs individual, who just deal with the facts, maybe investigators or somebody who would make a good lawyer or law enforcement. They just told things as they were, and they expected a response from the people as well. So Isaiah is a book where, if you read it from cover to cover, you'll see elements of both. There's forthtelling, a lot of being honest with the people about how things are. And then there's a lot of forthtelling as well. And this forthtelling is anticipating what was back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that there is a person who will come and will set them free, not just from the oppression of their own hearts, but the darkness all around them as well. And that's extremely important as it relates to the person of Christ. Now, if we look ahead, you probably know this, but Jesus, when he begins his public ministry after he'd been uh, tempted and, and, and endured all kinds of temptation, one of the first things that he does in his public ministry is recorded in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. And this is what we read there. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. I think I've gone way too far. Here, let me back up. Here we go. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He unrolled Isaiah and looked at one of those prophecies foretelling of the time when a person would be born who would do all these things. And Jesus said, here I am. Today, it's fulfilled. What Isaiah was prophesying about has come in the flesh, standing in front of you right now. So, we can confidently read Isaiah with a Christological lens, right? We know when we read back in Isaiah and they're waiting for the Messiah to come, it's talking about Jesus. At least that's Jesus' understanding. When you read Isaiah, any of those things looking forward to the Messiah coming are found in me. That's one of the beauties of us living on this side of God's redemptive story. The people back in Isaiah's time were waiting for the Messiah. Jesus says, I've come. Now we're living thousands of years afterwards, and Jesus says, when you read Isaiah, you can do it not wondering who is the Messiah, because he came. All the predictions find their fulfillment in Christ. Now Isaiah himself was a prophet in the south. You know, there were ten tribes in the north, two in the south, and Isaiah is writing to Jerusalem and Judah during a time when the northern tribes are going to be going into captivity. Assyria is swooping down, and judgment has come upon them. And Isaiah is saying, look, what's going to happen to this group of people will also happen to you, the southern tribes, unless you change your ways. Northern tribes become an object lesson. You sow what you reap. You reap what you sow. And change now and let the darkness then inspire you to change. That's how he begins in chapter 1. If you were to open up and look, he says, look, seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. We heard about that in the prayer. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. That's back in chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. But that's not happening. The faithful city, he says in verse 21, has become a harlot, graphic imagery. Rulers are rebels, and they're self-serving in verse 23. The people in power only care about themselves, and they're leveraging their power to gain more for themselves. But that's not what God had called his people to do. Because of this, God's hand will turn against them in verse 24. That's the tone of so much of Isaiah despair, hopelessness, and darkness. There's not a lot of light, especially in the first 40 chapters of the book of Isaiah. But of course, that's where light shines the brightest, isn't it? Have any of you ever been spelunking before in total darkness? And you just flick on the tiniest of light, and whew, it goes on. So here, God's people who are in the midst of darkness, and some of it of their own making, are encouraged to look ahead to a time when light will shine. And of course, they themselves are called to be the light. But it doesn't seem that they're fulfilling what they've been designed to do. But there is one who will. And so in Isaiah chapter 7, we see that first glimmer of hope, Isaiah 7, 14. The virgin will give birth to a child. And he will be called, what? Emmanuel, God with us. That's what we've been discussing, Christmas from beginning to end. Christmas meaning God is with us, no matter what, in the midst of darkness. And here's that glimmer of hope. The virgin will give birth in chapter 7. 
and the child's name will be Emmanuel. Well, we're looking today at chapter 9. That's pretty close to chapter 7. And we've already read this. And what then is Isaiah saying in chapter 9 about Christmas, God with us, that's being anticipated in this passage? How do we see that? And in verses 1 through 4, just kind of going through this text, we see first the promise of light. And we had this Advent reading that was the, the Advent today, the Sunday, is light. That light comes in the midst of darkness. Against the impending sense of doom, if you read the first eight chapters of Isaiah, and the shadow of death, and the sense of hopelessness, this Messiah figure will come. Isaiah uses what's called the prophetic past quite a bit. He writes in the past tense as if it happened, but it hasn't yet because it's still to come. And that's mixed into these first four verses as well. A past tense, speaking of a future event. So this is very much a community who is in waiting. This is a community in Isaiah chapter 7 that's being described, 9, that's in waiting. They're waiting for this to happen. They're holding on to these promises. They need hope when things are dark, and light always gives hope. And that's even given a clearer definition later in Isaiah 60, and we heard this read during the Advent reading. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. So here was the promise of light to come. And although it's not fully present yet, they're to live in light of it. This is what I mean by community and waiting. You live in light of the promises of God to be fulfilled. And they have fewer of those promises fulfilled in the already not yet. They're already seeing God's provision, but the Messiah hasn't come. We live in a place where we look back and see that the Messiah has come and he himself embodies the most light, and yet we're still waiting for its full consummation. We're a community in waiting also. And we live in light of the reality that light has come and it is coming. There's a tension in Advent. I was reading from a pastor friend today or earlier this week about the Advent tension. All of the tension that exists in this sense of waiting because there's still darkness. And yet in the darkness, we see the light. There's still despair, but in despair, we see hope. There's still weakness, but in weakness, there is strength. And we live in this tension. And if you and I don't figure out how to do that in a way that's thriving, well, we're going to be hopeless. We don't have to be, though, because the gospel reminds us, and Isaiah reminds us, that we can live in light of Christmas, God with us, even as we wait in that tension that exists in our lives. The danger of living while waiting is that we can lose sight along the way. You know, you're waiting for it to come. It doesn't feel like it's coming. It's easy to lose sight. And so you look for alternative uh, ways to, to live life. Or, or you're looking for answers in different directions. This is exactly what the people were doing in Isaiah's day. Isaiah chapter 8, right before chapter 9, I mean, the immediate context of verses right before, the people are consulting the dead for answers. 
They want, they're asking, what do I do and how do I live and what's coming next? But they've already been given that in God's word. The light they've been given is enough for them to move forward, but they're, they're, not, they're not seeking God's face. They're looking for answers from the dead. And into that, Isaiah says, you're looking in the wrong places, people. Here's a glimmer of where you should be looking. How much more so for us on this side of Christ's arrival that we still wait a second coming? Hebrews 1 makes it clear. Listen to this language and think about Isaiah. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he'd provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. There's a lot of similar language to what's happening back in Isaiah. He's spoken to us by his son. He's clearly revealed himself. And that son is the heir of all things through whom he made the universe. The radiance of God's glory, the, the, the splendor, the light. It's like at the transfiguration when we get this glimpse of the resurrected Christ uh, b- before he'd even done that. And all of his glory and splendor and the, those who are on the mountain can't even look at it because it's so dazzling and brilliant. That's what's expressed in the person of Jesus. He's spoken clearly in his son. And no wonder Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So the promise for us who follow this Messiah is that we know the true light of the world. He is ours and we are his. But we're still a people in waiting. We were talking about this passage in our life group uh, this week and through some of the dialogue, what we came up with as, as we talked about this is that he gives us enough light for the day. And it was interesting um, because somebody mentioned that if we had all of the light, if we could see everything, say in the future, light, you'd be completely undone. You can't handle the truth, as it were. If you were to see everything and there was full light on the future, can you imagine? And then if there's no light whatsoever, where are you going to be? You're going to be hopeless, despaired destitute you can't see any. Christ gives us by virtue of his spirit enough light for the day he gives us just what we need for the day and so for those of us who look at the future and imagine a thousand possibilities and all the worst case scenarios you were not designed to bear that load stop being God you don't make a great God you just don't and I guess I'm forth telling when I say that <laughs> It's true, you don't. So stop it. Don't do it. Trust. This is one of the beautiful things if you're a follower of Christ who is a light. He gives you in life light for the day. He's going to say that in the Sermon on the Mount when we get back to it as well. Each day has enough trouble of its own, people. Just, Just focus on that. And here's the good news. He will give you what you need to sustain you for that day. He is the sustainer of all things. And that's the promise of light in verses 1 through 4. But we also see in verse 5 
Christmas, God with us, what difference does it make? Well, there's a, a picture of the end of conflict. It's interesting language that's used here, and you might be wondering what's going on. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and fuel for the fire. So the picture here is that equipment that's used for battle, it just isn't needed anymore. All the stuff that was designed to go into, into warfare, just burn it. You have a big old bonfire. There's a picture in Amos of this too, beating your swords into plowshares. I mean, there's no, no more need for conflict and war and, and battle because the one who is peace has come. Uh, some of you maybe know Petros Yefru. He's an Ethiopian pastor. He's at People's Church and he spoke, I don't know, five years ago at our Christmas for the Nations event back when it was held at the Mason Municipal Building. And Petros is probably the most understated person on the face of the planet. In fact, I don't know if anybody actually heard him because he speaks so gently <laughs> and so peacefully. And he's just a man of peace. I don't know if any of you have met him or not. It's quite amazing. He pastors a church that has combined the Ethiopians with those from Eritrea. And there's a history of conflict between the two. But in Christ, they know peace. So they worship the one Savior together, even though, humanly speaking, they should be at odds with one another. And he was one of the people who held up a rifle or a semi-automatic weapon looking for others to kill until he tells the story that he met Jesus. And when that happened, he literally laid down his arms and said, I am no longer a man of conflict, I'm a man of peace. When Jesus comes, he says, I am your peace. And Petros took that quite literally. He put down his weaponry and said, I'm not fighting anymore. I'm going to lay down my life. Even if you, my enemy, kill me, I will not raise a finger. Petros would stand here right now and in his gentle voice tell you how he no longer has anger toward others. Even though the human storyline is you should hate that person because of who they are and what they've done to you. He says, how could I possibly? Jesus gave up everything for me. I laid down my arms. This is a picture of what Isaiah is saying as well. He's living proof of that. He's a man of peace because he follows the man of peace. His battle boots and his guns aren't needed anymore. And instead, these items really can kind of be repurposed. I mean, was it last week or two weeks ago? The weeks kind of run together that noonday collection, uh, Kim's not here, but she was wearing the jewelry and Jill went and bought one of those too. That what Jill has on her neck right now is uh, artillery shells that have been picked up by women who live in battle zones, and they've repurposed those shells to make beautiful jewelry. What a picture of the gospel. What a picture of light in darkness. What a picture of peace in the midst of conflict. What a picture of what it means to be a follower of the light of the world. And there's no human way you could do that except God bursting in and saying, I've taken your heart, which is dark, and shed light on it. This is what Isaiah is saying. This is why he gets excited about the one to come as God gives him this vision and this picture of what it means to have Christmas, God with us, even back in the day of Isaiah. I wonder what it might look like to bring that around in our own context. 
you know, what would it look like to bring light in darkness or peace in the midst of conflict? Here's just an idea. You know, Proverbs talks about a harsh word stirs up anger, but a gentle answer turns away wrath. If we're going to be people of peace, and believe me, this is not very easy to do. In fact, it's probably impossible unless God's spirit takes your heart and changes you. What about the next time a sibling or a spouse or a child or a boss says something that just really cuts at you and you want to respond in kind and you decide to give a gentle answer? I mean, not a snarky one like, oh, bless you, my child. You clearly need a blessing. <laughs> but the genuine brokenness and, and humility of heart that says, you know, whatever it is, a word of peace to people who come at you with fire, the end of conflict. And this all comes in verse 6, the, the hope is wrapped up in a child. Isaiah says it will be born and a son who will be given. Child born, a son given, and commentators talk about this as a picture of both the human and the divine because there's a child born in space and time of the line of David. He's certainly human, but also there's this divine provision, a son who's given. By whom? By God. Back in Isaiah 7:14, and we know the story later too when Mary, who we heard prayed about, where did this child come from? God. She's bearing the Son of God. She had no human way to explain it. And so even back here in Isaiah, the language is of a son who would be fully human but fully divine. One who would come who was worthy of all of our worship because he created all things. We saw that in Hebrews chapter 1, but the book of Hebrews makes it clear he's a brother. He's just like us. He put on flesh. And so we can approach the throne of grace with confidence because he knows all of our struggles. I mean, this is back in Isaiah. The, 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 the looking down to this one who would be provided. God with us. Human, divine, transcendent, out there, but imminent with us. God is with us. Emmanuel. And furthermore, in verse 6, we read that the government will be on his shoulders. He bears the burden of ruling the world. That's what's being said here. That's what a sovereign king does. He's in charge of everything. He's the king, the Messiah who has come, and this world is his footstool. And he does as he pleases. A guy named Tim Hudson tells a story about George McCoslin, who some years ago served as director of YMCA in western Pennsylvania near Pittsburgh. I know some of you have some YMCA backgrounds. It was a difficult situation because apparently the YMCA was losing money, membership, and staff, and he was working 85 hours a week trying to solve the problem. And he found himself getting a little sleep at night, and he took some, some time off, and uh, even when he was away from the job, he was worrying and fretting about the problems of the YMCA. He visited a therapist who warned him that he was on the verge of a nervous breakdown, and somehow he needed to let go and let God take charge of his problems. But how do you do something like that? So apparently the breakthrough, breakthrough came one day when he took a notebook and ventured out into a forest not far from where he lived, 
As he walked through the cool woods, he could feel his muscles starting to relax. Sitting down under a tree, he sighed and felt at ease for the first time in months. He took out his notebook and decided to let go of the burdens of his life. He wrote God a letter that simply said, Dear God, today I hereby resign as general manager of the universe. <laughs> Love, George. And looking back on that moment, he reflected with a twinkle in his eye, and wonder of wonders, God accepted my resignation. <laughs> He's the one who bears the burden of the world, not you. The government's on his shoulders. He is the sovereign king. And he is the Messiah whose names in verse 6 display this combination of power, wisdom, and peace. I mean, they're written out as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And there's a combination of them. Power, wisdom, and peace. I mean, the power of these names. He is wonderful counselor. It kind of reads as wonder. He is the wonder. And he is mighty God. He is all-powerful. We saw in Hebrews 1, through him all things were made. He's the everlasting one, the everlasting father. And we are his children as well as his brothers and sisters. I mean, this is amazing stuff. He's the prince of peace. Prince speaks of power as well. He has wisdom because he rules, not just capriciously, but with understanding. He is the counselor. He understands and knows all of us. I mean, Jesus tells us he's aware of every hair on our bodies, every thought. He knows how you were created. He understands your family history. He knows your besetting sins that won't let go of you. He knows what it is that you won't let anybody else see. He knows your aches, your pains, your, your, your dreams, your losses. He knows it all. And he's the one who, because of that, you know, if you ever go to a counselor I have, you spend so much time just trying to, under, you know, like, well, tell me about you. And then five sessions later, the person's kind of like, okay, now we're finally able to start doing something. <laughs> Jesus already knows all that stuff. He knit you together in your mother's womb. And because of that, he knows how to speak to your heart in a way that is unique. And if he only had power without peace, he'd be a tyrant. I mean, this, he is the prince of peace. Can you imagine somebody with all the power who only uses it for selfish gain. That's exactly what people were doing in Isaiah's day. Even those who were writing the documents to, uh, to our nation started with the premise that, you know, our hearts are kind of evil. We're prone and disposed toward doing things that are only for ourselves. So let's build in a system of check, checks and balances. That was their intent to say, that branch of government is made of a group of people and because of that, they'll try to get power in their hands. So let's create some others that check and balance each other. So, because if we give it to anybody, I don't care who it is, they're going to use it for wrong or evil. Somewhere down the line. Somehow, even if it's subtle. And God himself, wrapped in the flesh in the person of Christ, he's the prince of peace. When he rules, he does it with peace in mind. Shalom. The whole benefit, not just one part of who you are, but all part of creation. And sometimes we tend to individualize. It's just me and Jesus walking along, me and, and peace. But he doesn't have any of that because we're a body. And if one part hurts, all parts hurt. 
You can't just bifurcate this and look at one thing. And so he says, seek justice for all. Seek the prosperity and the peace of your city, not just your neighborhood or your home. All of it. And he's the one who's in charge of this as the prince of peace. We said last week as we were thinking about big storylines that the story isn't over yet. It's something that we need to hold on to. To me, that's part of being a community and waiting. The story isn't over yet. Uh, Jill was sharing with me a couple days ago. She was listening on the radio to someone speaking about a similar notion as well. And the question was, who are you allowing to write your story? Maybe instead of God. You know, fear, is fear writing your story? Are you doing every action because you're hedging your bets and you're afraid of what might happen? Or is loss so overcoming you that it is writing your story or comfort, the desire for more or safety or security? Or maybe a person, somebody. Any of those things, though, are not going to do a very good job. None of those is able to do what the mighty God, wonderful counselor, everlasting father, and prince of peace can. Who have you given the pen to in your life? Who are you, have you given it to and say, you write my story? Fear, comfort, loss, some shame, a sin in your life? They're going to write terrible storylines. Who, if this is true, if we have a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, don't you want to give the pen to that person? Okay, you write my story. And you might not like how it's going. I get that. And you get to a point, just like Isaiah did as well, where he's just, we read about it. He, why do you complain, O Jacob, and say, have you forgotten my way? Have you forgotten me? And he says, no, by no means. He's the one who holds everything in his hands, and he hasn't forgotten you. He's engraved his name in them. All creation, his. And you also? It may be mysterious, and his ways, as Isaiah says, are higher than our ways. But the Prince of Peace tells us they're good. And you can trust him by handing him the pen. And this kingdom that you become a member of as you do that is perpetual and progressive. Perpetual, and that there will be no end to it, according to verse 7. There's no end to this government, and it's progressive it's increasing it's unfolding it's growing there's no term limit here he is going to reign forever and ever and in this case that's a good thing he will establish his kingdom with justice he says he cares about wrongdoing and he's not going to turn an eye against it and we know some of that happens again as we look forward to the end of time when all that's wrong is made right. But the people living here in Isaiah have the hope and the light that even if they live in the midst of injustice, they have a king who is caring about it and wants to do something and will do something. And he calls us to be engaged in it as well. Perpetual and progressive. Ongoing and... We know this about redemptive history. There's more light shed as we go on. 
And it's so clearly given in the person of Christ. And you might think this all sounds great, but is it really going to get done? And so Isaiah ends this brief passage by assuring us that the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. He'll do it. It's, it's a promise not only that he's going to do it, but that he cares even more than you could possibly imagine about it. The zeal, the energy, the fervor, the strength, the commitment to the end. What he began in you to individualize in it, he will complete until the day of Christ Jesus. That's a guarantee. That is a guarantee. I can tell you right now that God has not finished writing a story, but he will bring it to completion. Hebrews again. He's the author and the finisher of your faith. He doesn't start something he doesn't finish. That's just not his way. And if that's true for you, then you can rest in that, even with the others around you who look a lot like unfinished stories. And you, maybe you're picking up the pen saying, I'll take it from here. <laughs> Drop it. Let God do this. He will accomplish it in his time, in his way. And that's part of what it means to be a community in waiting. It doesn't mean we sit and don't do anything. But our perspective and our energy is driven and filled with, with, with zeal. The same kind of zeal that he has to make it so. This made me think of Cliff Young, whom I've referenced before and I was just thinking about him again, and he's had so many things written about him. But this, this article, I'll read a piece of it, is just from, uh, from this year in July 22. Some of you will know this story. 61-year-old Cliff Young showed up to the 1983 Westfield Sydney to Melbourne Ultra Marathon in his first ever pair of running shoes and windbreaker pants with hand-cut holes for ventilation. He picked up his number popped out his false teeth, they rattled when he ran, and stepped into line with a group of young, nylon-clad super-athletes waiting to start the 544-mile race. Of the spectators, staff, and athletes, the kind ones were confused, and the less charitable ones scoffed. How was this old man going to compete against professional athletes who'd carefully trained for the inaugural installment of this grueling five-day race? In fact, Young was a potato farmer and shepherd who had gained endurance chasing thousands of sheep across his family farm in overalls and gumboots. He also still lived with his mom. When the race started off, the elite runners quickly left Young behind. His stride wasn't really even a stride, more of a shuffle, to be exact. And he was anything but fast. But Young's experience, so different than those around him, would turn out to be a game changer. He reportedly told curious reporters pre-race, See, I grew up on a farm where we couldn't afford horses or tractors. And the whole time I was growing up, whenever the storms would roll in, I'd have to go out and round up the sheep. We had 2,000 sheep on 2,000 acres. Sometimes I would have to run those sheep for two or three days. It took a long time, but I'd always catch them. I believe I can run this race. The accepted approach to the race at that time was that runners would run 18 hours a day and sleep for six hours a night. But when the professionals laid down for the evening, Young just kept shuffling along. When they awoke the next morning, 
Young had covered serious mileage. His competitors were certain he couldn't keep it up for the entire 544 miles, but Young kept gaining ground. In fact, he never slept. He eventually overtook the entire pack, gaining leads while they slept that even the slickest of sponsored Young runners couldn't close. By the time Young crossed the finish line, he was 10 hours ahead of the second place finisher. His folk hero status was cemented when he received the $10,000 first place prize, which he didn't know he was going to get, and proceeded to give away 7,000 of it to the other competitors. That's a lot of potatoes, he said of the purse. <laughs> His time of five days, 15 hours, and four minutes beat the record for running between Sydney and Melbourne by more than two days. So there's somebody, kind of an unassuming individual who shows up, you know, and the package looks like it's not going to deliver. And yet he does. This, his zeal accomplished it. He did, everybody else was running quickly and had the sponsors and slept, and he just kept going and going. He wouldn't quit, but he did age. He tried, he'd never repeat that feat again. His body got older, and he died in 2003. Now that is a wonderful example of the Messiah, but also quite a contrast to the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who never tires, the one who on the mountain when Elijah is calling down the other prophet says, maybe your God's out there taking a bathroom break or a nap. This God never slumbers and he never sleeps. And what he started, he will complete. Even yoes grow tired and weary, but he will never grow tired and weary. Though fully man and slept, fully divine, never closes his eyes, and you are in his sight. This morning, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, and one of the things that he's doing is he's praying for you. In the midst of what you feel like is darkness, the Messiah prophesied back here in Isaiah 9 has your name on his lips, and he's praying for you today. If you're one of his... And how do you get that? Simple faith, trusting in this, saying, yes, Lord Jesus. I look and I see only darkness, but I know you are the light of the world. And he promises all the way back in Genesis 3.15 that he's going to take care of it. And here in Isaiah chapter 9, that a son is going to be given who will bear the burdens of the world. You no longer need to bear those. And there's more coming but you have to come back next week to hear. Because it's Christmas from beginning to end. And next week we'll be in the book of Matthew, where he arrives. Father, we pray today that you'd remind us again of your presence with us. For those of us who feel like we open our eyes and only see darkness, may we hear the words of the prophet again today and remember that you have come. And so, because of that, we can hear these words and know that they are true. Arise and shine, for your light has come. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. And Father, this day we come to that light, even as the candle burns, just as a symbol of what is true, would you shine light into our hearts once again so that you can give us clarity of sight and strength for the day. We thank you that you give us enough light, and sometimes we just don't feel like it is. 
Thanks that you've taken on our darkness on Gethsemane and that we no longer need to hear words that you have forsaken us because you forsook your own son, born in space and time. But he rose again from the dead and he sits at the right hand of God the Father and he intercedes for us now. And as we await his return, we want to live well as people of light in the here and now, never losing hope because the zeal of the Lord has accomplished it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.